You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Our passage for this morning comes from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe him, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad. Hey, thank you. Thank you for that energy. I'm so glad to see you all. Uh, Go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. That is where we are at. And as you turn there, I'm going to go ahead and start us off in a word of prayer, and we are going to jump into this really fascinating part of, of this chapter. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we ask that you be with us now and that you would give us, Lord, what we need. Each one of us here come with needs and wants and struggles and uh, joys. God, I pray that you would meet us where we're at and help us to sustain and keep on going. Help us to be convicted of the right things. Help us to be comforted of the right things, Lord. We pray that you just meet us where we are at. God, my prayer today for each and every one of us here is that we would be faithful followers of you, that we'd be students who are committed to a life that is underneath the teachings of Jesus. God, I pray that you do this in us. Make us into these kinds of disciples, we pray in your name. Amen. So if you've read the Bible and are familiar with Jesus' life and ministry, you know that he had disciples. This passage is about Jesus' disciples. But one of the mistakes that we often make in our thinking is we forget that Jesus had more than 12 disciples. We know the 12 disciples, but those really primarily are the 12 apostles. Jesus had a lot of disciples. The word disciple simply means student or apprentice. Jesus, as a rabbi, as a popular figure in his day, had many people who were apprenticing underneath him, following his teachings. And this is a very diverse group. Of course, we knew there's fishermen and zealots in that small inner circle of 12 apostles and 12 disciples, but there was women and teenagers and Pharisees and scribes and even later on Gentiles. I mean, Jesus' following was this diverse group of students, but today we see a great majority of these disciples turn away, fall away, and no longer follow Jesus. What's the difference between those who continue on and those who do not? Today we're going to find out. So my question for you is, do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? And what I mean by that is someone who follows his teachings, who's apprenticing underneath him, who's committed to a lifelong quest of becoming more like Jesus underneath his model, underneath his wisdom. Is that you? Do you want that for your life? 
If you do, there's going to be some crossroads that you're going to face, and how you will respond to these different crossroads is going to determine if you continue on as a disciple and a student of Jesus. So let's go ahead and get started in, in uh, verse 60. Jesus makes these startling statements like, I am the bread of life, and I am the bread that comes down from heaven, and whoever feeds on me, my flesh, and drinks my blood has eternal life. He has said these things previously, and this is, these are metaphors, these are symbols to communicate spiritual realities. He is the better Moses, that's what he means when he says, I provide better manna, he's better than Moses. He's the real and true Exodus, the real and true Passover. He's making these claims during the week of Passover. He's saying salvation is meant to be like a feast or like liberation from darkness. But in making these claims, you have to realize this, in making the claims that Jesus is saying here, he is downgrading Moses. He is downgrading their prized Exodus story. He is downgrading their most important feast, the Passover, which is why many of the disciples say in verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus is saying these outrageous things. We can't stomach it anymore. See, Jesus' claims, his teachings, they do not align with their commitments. These disciples turn away. They have this preset idea of what will make them happy. They have already made conclusions about how their lives should go, and they want a manageable Messiah who's just going to be a part of their life rather than someone who's going to adjust their life. So then Jesus, he taps into his divine omniscience. He addresses them in 61 and 62 and says this, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. So your first point here is this. Followers of Jesus, those who make it for the lifelong quest, they get over the offense of Jesus. Jesus is offensive. His ways, his design for your life, his teachings, it's going to contradict you and it will offend you. The disciples who make it get over that offense. So Jesus says, you take offense at that, these things, downgrading Moses, downgrading the Passover, saying it's all about me, it's all fulfilled in me. He says, here's something more outrageous. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascend back to where he was before? Now the question here is, why is that so outrageous and so offensive? Why is, that, why is, why is it so outrageous? Jesus is saying here, what if I were to tell you that the kind of Messiah that I am does not match your idea of what a Messiah should be, but in fact, directly opposes what your idea of who I am should be. He's trying to make it clear, I am no longer compatible with your idea of the good life. So Jesus, he uses the title Son of Man. He says the Son of Man is going to send back to where he was before. And if you've read the Gospels a lot, Jesus, that's his favorite title to use of himself. He doesn't use the title Messiah. Other people tell him that he's the Messiah, but rarely does Jesus designate himself as the Messiah. He always says that he's the Son of Man. Do you know why that's the case? Why Jesus does that? That title, Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's this vision of this human yet divine figure at the end of time who's going to inherit all dominion, all authority, and all power of the kingdom of God. But notice that it's at the end of time. So Jesus is not the kind of Messiah who's going to break into the middle of history and set up an earthly kingdom with earthly glory and present power according to their agenda. He's the Son of Man. He's the future, at the end of the world, at the end of history kind of authority 
dominion that he's going to set up. So it doesn't jive. This, this title doesn't jive with their preset idea of how things should go. And then he says, I'm going to send back to where I was before. That's offensive. Now, why is that offensive? Then eating flesh and drinking blood. That's what he says earlier in this passage. First, the reason why to say that is so offensive is because it is, again, a very clear claim to divinity. Jesus is stating that his home, his place of belonging, where he was previously, is above. He is transcendent. So this is obviously outrageous for any man to claim to be God because Jesus is placing himself on a level that only God is to be on. But also, if this is true, if Jesus actually is God, that means they must worship Jesus. That means they must obey Jesus. That means they must change their entire lives in a way of thinking to match Jesus' teachings. But most outrageous that Jesus is God is that God would become man. The Jewish people would never think God would come to us, to dirty, sinful, unclean people who he has created. God is way too holy for that. So this is outrageous to say this because it means that Jesus is God. Therefore, we must align with him. It would also mean that God humbled himself to a point that we are just not comfortable with. This can't be what God is like. God certainly would never come to us to the dirt, but that's not all that's offensive. Because packed into this statement that I'm ascending back to where I was before, Jesus is alluding to the entirety of his mission, which they don't yet fully know. So if Jesus will ascend back to heaven, that of course means what? That he first descended. And in the Gospel of John, this language of ascending back to heaven, it's paired with Jesus' death on the cross. So Jesus is alluding to his death on the cross. Look at uh, John chapter 3, 13 and 14. It says this. Jesus earlier says this. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from above, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So to say I'm ascending back means I've descended below, but not just that I've descended, but I've come to die on the cross. Now, if you didn't know this, the cross was the most horrendous image imaginable in this time, especially for the Jewish community. Crucifixion was the most pitiable thing that could ever happen to a human being. It was the symbol of Rome's dominance over its subject. For the Messiah of Israel to die this kind of death is basically blaspheme. So instead of conquering, listen here guys, focus. So instead of conquering Israel's enemies, Jesus is going to die for them. And if Jesus is dying on a Roman cross, rather than defeating Rome, then that must only mean something more urgent and oppressive needs to be dealt with, our sin. So you're getting all that? For Jesus to say, I'm coming to die on, to die on the cross, means... Not only, not only am I submitting to Rome, but it means something more urgent than Rome's oppression and dominance needs to be dealt with, which is sin in you. So instead of establishing a military kingdom on earth, Jesus is ascending to establish a kingdom that is a spiritual reality. So listen here. These students of Jesus must embrace Jesus as God who comes to earth 
to die in dishonor because their biggest problem is not Rome's occupation, but their own indwelling sin. And then Jesus is going to inaugurate a kingdom that is not of this world. In other words, what Jesus is up to, it's totally different than what they signed up for. So, if this is who your teacher is, and this is what he models, then what does this mean for you? As he went, so you go. Do you see now why so many deserted him? Why so many couldn't handle his teachings and follow him after this point? Because there's no honor here then. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you don't expect earthly superiority or glory. There is only what? What does Jesus model? Loving enemies, serving others, releasing rights, releasing privileges, crucifying our flesh, and looking for a kingdom that is not of this world, but a kingdom that is to come. This is what Jesus is teaching and expects, and they couldn't handle it. Now, if you don't believe me, that this is the kind of kingdom and life that Jesus expects of his followers, just look at the apostles. Those original disciples of Jesus, they remain while everybody else defects. They were that inner circle, but who were they? Think about this. This is really interesting. Who does Jesus hand-select to be his inner circle? Some are fishermen. Some were political zealots. One was a tax collector. What they all have in common, one was a teenager. (laughs) What they all have in common is none of them were of prestige. They were poor. They were on the fringe. They were outcasts. In other words, they were not anyone's first pick for becoming a disciple of a rabbi. Remember, in these times, every Jewish kid goes through Torah school, and if you show promise, you get picked up by a rabbi, and you continue on, which means all of these, inner, this, these men in this inner circle, they didn't show promise. They didn't make it past that cut. They went on to their father's occupation. They went on to other things. They were on the fringe. They were nobody's first round selection to be a disciple of a rabbi. Yet these are who Jesus chooses to establish his kingdom. A bunch of nobodies who are okay with being a bunch of nobodies. And do you know how the rest of their life went, these, this inner circle? They were poor. They were not in power. They sacrificed and nearly all of them died a martyr's death. So seriously, Jesus is not about present glory, present honor, present superiority, being just a part of our life we can manage to get us to have our agenda fulfilled. Jesus is saying, I ascend back to the Father, which means I first descended to die so that we can understand that my kingdom is a spiritual reality that you live in by faith. It's not present glory. So if you follow Jesus, you may not get all you want in this life. Is that okay with you? Others, not me. The cross, not glory. Future reward, not present. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves, let him resurrect us until the day we actually die, and then he actually resurrects us. That is the great quest of following our great teacher, Jesus. So who's in? (laughs) Who wants to be in on this? In theory, look, in theory, this sounds great in theory. I love this in theory, but in reality, this kind of discipleship is intense. 
I'm not sure I'm going to be able to sustain a life that is modeled after Jesus. But in what follows, I think now we're given some secrets now to following Jesus in a way that sustains this for the long haul. So first, you want the secret to following Jesus as his student, as his apprentice for the long haul? Followers of Jesus give themselves to the word. They get over the offense of Jesus and then they give themselves to his word. Verse 63 says this, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. To get over the offense of Jesus, we need the Spirit's power applied to us. Now, what that means is the Spirit must invade our spirit, our inner being, our inner man, as he takes up residence within us. And when that happens, when the Spirit of God finds his home in you, his character, his desires, his thoughts, what he values and what he loves all become yours. It becomes integrated with your being. So then we want new things, better things, and our new will that we have causes us to be intellectually open to new ideas. And surprisingly, these new ideas, which before we hated and wanted nothing to do with, now they resonate with us because the Spirit of God is inside of us. It is the Spirit who gives life. And when our hearts and minds are open to God, taking in more of Him, we have a new power to help us answer the call of discipleship with Jesus. But look, the Spirit of God is not compatible with our flesh. The flesh is our human desires, but the Bible understands the problem of our flesh of our human desires is that they are polluted by sinful nature. So our flesh's natural inclination is towards selfishness, not service. It's towards excess, not contentment. It's towards immediate gratification, not long-suffering. And when the flesh is unrestrained, untrained, undisciplined, what happens then? We become slaves to our flesh. And then we can't live as disciples of Jesus, but instead live in self-destruction, and we hurt other people. So listen, the spiritual life, the life under the spirit and the life under the flesh, they are not compatible. And over time, these are going to collide and one will win out. Either the flesh is going to short circuit this whole thing and you're going to live and slave the flesh or you're going to submit yourself to the spirit and live. So if you want to be a disciple of Jesus and follow him, the flesh will be of no help to you. The flesh wants everything opposite of Jesus and his kingdom. The flesh wants honor, glory, comfort, gratification, and excess. It wants present, immediate happiness. It cannot wait for future happiness. The Spirit alone, then, can help us get over the offense of Jesus and live for him according to his ways. So now my question is then, how do we fight the flesh? How do we, what must we do to give ourselves more to the Spirit so that the Spirit's voice and the Spirit's desires override the flesh and then we live out of the Spirit? How does that happen? Well, verse 63 continues and says this, Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Now notice, in your Bibles, the word spirit there is undercase. It's not the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not referring to the Holy Spirit. He's referring to the nature of his words. How should we understand Jesus' teachings? 
His words, what's the nature of them? Jesus' words are first and foremost purposed for our inner being, our spirit, our inner man. Jesus' words then are not merely about behavior and what we do. We get this wrong. We read the Bible, we see Jesus' instructions, and we think, how can I just apply this to my life immediately? How can I fix something? How can I behave better? What must I do? That's not the primary agenda of Jesus' words. His words are spirit. They appeal to the inner dimension of who we are before they ever appeal to the external dimension of who we are. And then when His word, then, is planted in our being, like seed in a soil, we experience life, we experience growth. So then this means we must let Jesus' words penetrate us at our deepest human level, deal with us internally so that life can be produced within us and then outside of us. We must let his words invade our inner man. So do you see then how we sustain ourselves for a lifetime of following our crucified teacher? We let Jesus' words operate where they are meant to operate inside of us. And when we open up ourselves to Jesus' words, then we're taking in truth that resonates with and agrees with the Spirit of God. His desires within us, remember? His character within us, what He loves, what He values, what He is passionate about. When we take in God's truth, we are appealing to the Spirit of God within us, which means His voice his urges, his commandings become more pronounced, more weighty than anything else. So you see how this works in tandem with one another. Jesus' words are spirit, purposed for our inner man, where the Holy Spirit resides within us. And when we do that, we are therefore causing the Spirit's voice to be more pronounced, more strong. So truly, Taking in Jesus' words empowers us to follow through on the life we know we ought to live. The life that we wanted to live for a long time now, but we never could because why? The flesh continually short circuits our will and our desires that view of life. This is what Romans 7 is all about. Remember that, that highly contested and debated Romans 7? What is it about? Who is this talking to? Paul says, in my inner being, I want to do what is right. In my inner being, I, I, I have this vision of how life should be underneath Jesus' rule, but I do not have the ability to carry it out because of indwelling sin within me. Remember he says that? But when we let Jesus' words into our being repeatedly, and deeply, then our flesh weakens. Our inner man's longings are met. Our mode of operation becomes less according to the flesh, more according to the Spirit. So do you want to make it as a disciple of Jesus for the long haul and get over the offense of Jesus continually? You must let Jesus' words invade your inner being. Set your mind on His truth because His truth appeals to the Spirit of God within us. This is what Romans 8, 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit.
If you want to live a life underneath the reign of the Holy Spirit, living how he wants you to live, flourishing underneath Jesus' lordship, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. If you do, you will live. But if you don't, then discipleship is going to be hard and disinteresting. And eventually that flesh and spirit battle happening within you, one will win out. And if you're not facing Fixing your mind on Jesus' words, the flesh will interrupt, the flesh will derail. A friend of mine is writing the book of James by hand right now, and that's pretty intense, right? It's pretty, it's pretty serious. He says that it's been incredible for him. Now imagine why that would be the case. Why writing out slowly each word of the, of the scripture that you're reading, why that would be an incredible experience, because you have to slow down. You have to appreciate every single word. You have to let it sink in deeply. You're not just glancing. You're not just sliding over it. You're actually interacting with the word there before you ponder it, you internalize it. You can see why that kind of experience would actually transform you and do something really powerful in you. And did you know that writing the Bible out by hand is totally biblical? And actually, in Deuteronomy 17, God commands Israel and says, when you have a king one day... What I want him to do, his job, a part of his job description is to, be, is to write out the entire law of God by hand. He has to make for himself a personal copy of the Torah. And it says this, why? Why, would, why should he do that in Deuteronomy 17? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments. So do you see how literally interacting with Jesus' words, God's words in a meaningful way, bringing them into your very self, it transforms. It does a really, really deep work within us. So how's your devotional life going? If you're in sin, if you're struggling, if you're feeling weak these days, it's likely directly tied to your commitment to Jesus' words. George Mueller, uh, in the 19th century, was an evangelist, and he also started an orphanage that served over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime in, in, in England. Now, that's a lot. And this man was busy, I mean, constantly raising money, constantly caring for the orphanage, constantly traveling and preaching. And this man's life was intense, and he just poured out his life for others. But here's what he said his secret was. He says this, it'll be behind me too. He says, I saw more clearly than ever that the first and great primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about how was not how I might serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man may be nourished. I saw the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of God and to the meditation, the word of God and to the meditation on it. And you might think, I'm too busy to do this. I'm, I'm too tired to do this. And I would respond and say, you are too busy and too tired not to do this, to be committed to discipleship, discipleship with Jesus, letting his words into your inner man. Hudson Taylor, another incredible servant of God in the 19th century, literally just pouring his life out. And he literally, he changed the world. He changed China 
there's still ripple effects from his ministry in the 19th century to today. He just lived his life as a servant. But his biographer says this about Hudson Taylor. What was the secret, we may well ask, of such a life? Hudson Taylor had many secrets, for he was always going on with God, yet they were but one. The simply profound secret of drawing for every need, temporal or spiritual, upon the fathomless wealth of Christ. To find out how he did this, and to make our own his simple, practical attitude towards spiritual things would solve our problems and ease our burdens so that we too might become all that God would make us. We want, we need, we may have Hudson Taylor's secret and his success, for we have Hudson Taylor's Bible and his God. So if you want to be a student of Jesus, you must get over the offense of Jesus, not present glory, future glory, not life about you, life about others. The only way to do that is to give yourself to the Word, and it will change you. God's Word will change you. But now there's another secret. The second way we get over the offense of Jesus and sustain discipleship for the long haul is followers of Jesus gain great faith. They have great faith. They possess great faith. 66 and 67 says this, After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? So Jesus, he's turning to his twelve, his inner circle, and now he's giving them an out. This is it. Okay, everyone else is leaving. Do you want to leave? I know this is intense. I know this is a lot to ask. What do you want to do? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? There's nowhere else to go. There's no other alternatives. Now, why would Simon Peter arrive there? We're at this point where Jesus has made it very abundantly clear he's not going to be just managed in our life, but he's going to take over our life and ask everything of us. Simon Peter says, where else can we go? Why does he do that? Keep on reading. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, if you're reading there and paying attention, you see this sequence. He's saying, Jesus, we've heard what you've said. We've heard your teachings. You have the words of life. We've believed and have come to know. And now we've arrived at what? What's the end result? You are the Holy One of God. This profound confession that says, yes, you are God's man. Yes, you're the one sent by God. You are the Messiah. Now we need to ask ourselves, what are we seeing here? This ark. He's heard Jesus' words. He's become convinced, totally persuaded of Jesus' words. It's produced concrete assurance, concrete confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. How do we become convinced? Can we, like Peter, step into the ark, hear Jesus' words, and at the end of the process be so convinced that Jesus will hold up his end of the deal? Can we be persuaded like that? How do we do that? How do we become persuaded? We put it to the test. We say this every week. We've been saying this every week, and it's going to come up every week. Test and verify Jesus' words in your life. I dare you. I dare you to live in a way that tests and sees whether or not God is telling the truth about himself. That's how we become convinced. 
that Jesus is who he says he is and how we become, how we have great faith. So look, if Jesus is really God, then what would we conclude? That he is sovereign, that he has all authority, that he has all power, he has every ability to make and keep promises? Test it. If Jesus really is the bread of life who satisfies soul hunger, then what would, what would we conclude? He's better than sheep thrills. He's better than shallow and temporary pursuits. I dare you test it in your life. Test it. If Jesus really can cause rivers of living water to rise up in us and heal us, then what would we, what would we conclude? That we should let him in that we should let him confront us deeply. He can cause life where there is death. Test it. Test the claims of Jesus in your life and see what happens. And I can guarantee you that your faith will become stronger because what's going to be evident to your own eyes and your own heart is that Jesus is in fact who he says he is. And what happens, okay, you start doing this at first, you live in a way where you're testing to see whether or not God is telling the truth about his promises and about himself. At first, it's really scary. At first, it just feels like blind faith, like you're just jumping into the precipice and you're just hoping God shows up. At first, that's what it feels like. But what begins to happen as you practice this kind of faith, this kind of trust in your life, what happens is that becomes the safest place to be that risky danger position where you're hoping Jesus follows through on his word, that becomes the only place you want to live because everything else becomes risky. Everything else becomes unsafe because you know after testing it and testing it that he keeps his promises and he always shows up and follows through. In the same biography on Hudson Taylor, the author looks at his life and says this, the compensations were so real and lasting that he came to see that giving up is inevitably receiving. Giving up and letting God do whatever he wants, putting it all to the test and living a life of trust and faith, seeing if Jesus is who he says he is, it feels so risky, but eventually it will just feel safe. Giving up is inevitably receiving. Many turn back, though. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So will we make it? Will you make it in this life quest of following Jesus? Jesus actually gives an explanation of why some turned away and why his apostles didn't. <clears throat> 64 says this, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And then later on, 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. What Jesus is articulating here and teaching here is what we call now the doctrine of election. Jesus is saying that God has chosen before the foundations of the world those who would come to him. He predestines us for adoption. So Jesus, tapping into his divine omniscience, knows who is his and who is not. And this should really comfort us. Because if you're genuinely a disciple of Jesus, you will never be lost. 
you will never fall through his hands. If the Father has granted that you come to faith and come under the tutelage of Jesus, you will persevere to the end. But I know you guys got questions. I know you got questions. Don't worry. Your questions, obviously, how does this work with my free will? How does this, how can I know for sure that I'm a disciple then? How do I know that I'm one of those people who's not going to turn away? Can I know that I'm truly, you know, of God's elect? In 2 Peter, I love this verse in 2 Peter. It makes it all crystal clear and simple. Peter lists these characteristics that Christians practice and increase in over the course of their life. And then he says this in in 2 Peter 2. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, listen here, here it is. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, did you catch that? Confirm your election. Confirm your calling. How? Press on. Repent. Verify. Test. Keep going. Philippians 2 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. You can be sure that you are a disciple if the shape of your life as a whole matches the content of your confession. Is your confession and what you believe about Jesus making its way into your life and affecting change in your life? And are you pressing in to the reality of these claims? I'm not saying that works save you. They don't. But saving faith works. This is the whole entire book of James. James, Jesus' little brother, is writing this letter to these scattered Jews all across the surrounding regions. And if you've read the book of James, it's this letter that's heavy on works and what we should be doing and what our life should look like and what our practices should be. And I ask myself the question, why is James writing a letter that's literally emphasizing this completely? And the reason is because he knows that his Jewish community what they like to do now that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he's writing to people who have converted and are not following Jesus. He knows that the tendency is to gather in the synagogue and to gather in temple and have these theological discussions and answer these questions and, and have these intellectual practices and then go home and call it a day. To just gather and talk about what we think, but then that be it. And James is saying, be sure that your confession, that what you believe Your doctrine, your claim to be a disciple actually has changed your life. And so here's what your life should look like. Here's what the book of James says. Be sure you're suffering well, praying often, loving the poor, battling sin, bridling your tongue, dropping prejudices, and reconciling friendships. That's how you know you're a disciple of Jesus. If you're pressing in and leaning into who Jesus is and who he's calling you to be. Now, this this doctrine of election... Uh, and, and our partnering with God to work out our salvation and confirm our election, this makes total sense of Judas. I know some of you were hoping I'd get to this one, okay? Judas, he's one of the 12. He was a disciple. He was in the inner circle close to Jesus, yet he falls away. We know that. Jesus tells us that's what's going to happen. He's going to turn on Jesus. And Jesus says here he is a devil or a deceiver. 
See, the devil, remember, was an angel of light. He gave the appearance that he was in, that he was uh, um, team Jesus, but internally he was rebellious. Internally he was not there. His heart and his heart was arrogance and pride, meaning he appeared one way, but was not genuine. Judas is the same. He appeared one way, but his heart was in a totally different place. Did you know that Judas would continually and repeatedly steal money from Jesus' ministry? In John chapter 12, after Mary, you know, the sister of Lazarus, he was raised from the dead, and she, in gratitude, breaks this expensive perfume over Jesus and anoints him. It says this, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he, he, who was going to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about, about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, Judas's heart was never there. He gave the appearance that he was in, but internally, truthfully, who was he really? It wasn't genuine. He was not in it for the right reasons. His life did not match his words. So think about this. Peter and Judas in the inner circle, two of Jesus' friends, when you think about it, they did the exact same thing. They both betrayed Jesus. They both turned their backs on Jesus. The difference, though, was Peter was humble enough to take responsibility, to receive mercy, to redeem his mistake, while Judas, in the act of taking his own life, refused to take responsibility, refused mercy, refused to redeem his mistake. Do you see? We respond to this reality. The Father grants the Father loses none, let that comfort you and let it embolden you to press on to confirm your calling and confirm your election. Don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. The Bible doesn't confirm your election through ongoing trust and ongoing obedience. So, do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? You have to get over the offense. You have to let his word into your inner man and you have to gain great faith. Trust God over time. Let him verify who he is and who you are. Now, I know discipleship, when I say that, it's a very Christian term. But truthfully, everyone is discipled. Everyone is discipled by somebody into some belief system at any given time. I'm afraid, I'm afraid that too many Christians have been discipled by secular individualism and the American dream. I'm afraid that Netflix and Instagram are doing a far better job discipling than the church is. What we need, we need an awakening. We need an awakening in the church. We need disciples of Jesus for the long haul who live in total trust in him. Hudson Taylor never asked for a single dollar in his life he prayed and asked God to fund everything he was doing. And there'd be times where it literally went up to the last moment and then God would show up. We need to live like that. And we think that's so radical. Biblically, that's normal. To live like God is telling the truth. When I was a kid, I used to go to the water park. Do people do that anymore? I don't know. But there's this place in Ohio called Kings Island, and it had the most amazing lazy river. You guys know what a lazy river is? I hope you do. Otherwise, your life has been robbed of joy. <laughs> and so you'd get on this inner tube, 
and you just, you know, float along, right, like in a big eight or something, and it was just super chill. To me, and myself included, that's the church that's so many times. We're just floating along through life. We're just coasting. We don't have any anticipation for what God can do. We're not contending with God that he would do what he has promised to do in our lifetime. We're not living in trust. We're not swimming against the current. We're in an inner tube, soaking up some rays until it's time to get off. When we do baptisms here, we ask people to read their testimonies. And one friend's testimony, he says, life, I remember this, and it sticks with me because it's so true. He says, life is more than just being born, living, and dying. Isn't that the truth, though? But how often, if we examine our life, what does it look like? What's the shape of our life? What's the intensity of our life? What are we doing? Are we just coasting and floating or are we answering the call to be students of the great teacher, Jesus? There's much more to life than being born, living, and dying. But you'll never know that if you just try to manage Jesus. You'll never know that if you refuse his word. You'll never know that if you do not strengthen your faith through the act of trusting time and time again. So citizens, we're students of Jesus. Let's answer the call and go over the offense, receive his word, and gain great faith. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and we are limited and we are weak and we are struggling in different ways. And Lord, we just ask that you help us because we want to be followers of you. We want to live a life that looks like Jesus. We want to live a life that looks like the early church. It looks like the apostles who asked you and, and expected you, God, to follow through on your promises and do great work. Do that in us, Lord. Do that in our lives. Do that around us, we pray. Increase our faith. Help us to answer the call to follow you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.